Today's session, we're going to look at the connection between the environment and ecology, the land, Adama, nature, and Shabbos. At first uh, thought, we might not see the connection so much. It's like, what, what does Shabbos have to do with the environment? It might appear, I'm not saying it does, but it might appear to someone as like apples and oranges. But hopefully, we're going to see that it's so very connected. So we're going to start with uh, a few teachings, a few midrashim. So if we go back to the story of the Garden of Eden, so we see that Adam was put in the, the garden to work it and to guard it. This is our first understanding of the connection between man and his environment. That he was told two things, to work it and to guard it. Now that's obvious a, a sign to us of what our relationship should be to the earth. But there's even a, a more primordial connection and that's in the Hebrew words itself in the letters and of course it's very connected to your program which is called Adama that it says that Adam was formed from the dust of the earth and God blew into his nostrils the soul of life the way that is interpreted what does it mean <coughs> that man comes from the dust of the earth so it means that the body is the what's called the, uh, the the house of the lower soul. Sometimes it's called our animal nature. In other words, our body is a physical entity, and this, what God blows into us is the soul of life, is the neshama. So an Adam is a combination of an aleph and dam. What does dam mean? Blood. So blood represents the physical. And the aleph represents our godly nature. So even in the construction of the word adam, we see the, the combination and the ultimate unity that there's supposed to be between the physical and spiritual and between the physical body and the spiritual soul. They are meant to work together and it's actually a mitzvah in the Torah to guard our bodies and our soul which means that we should live a healthy lifestyle. It's actually going against one of the mitzvahs in the Torah to abuse our bodies. And that's why, at least in the last few years, more and more rabbis have been coming out and saying that according to the Torah, it's forbidden to smoke. You're actually breaking a commandment in the Torah if you smoke because there's so much evidence now of the tremendous dangers of smoking, on, uh, especially long term. But we see that Adam is obviously connected to the word Adama. 
Adama is Adam with a hey, as if a, the feminine version. So that's when we talk about Mother Earth. In many cultures, talk about Mother Earth, there really is something to it because the word Adama, Earth, is a feminine word. Adama. And that's why after Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve, ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, so it says God doesn't directly, as it were, curse Adam. And curse here means he has to pay the consequences of his actions. But instead, he curses the earth for the sake of, of Adam. That's why it says Adam had to work so hard to earn his livelihood. So we see in the most primordial way the connection between Adam and Adama, between the spiritual and the physical. And therefore, when Adam was put in the garden and told to guard, to work it and to guard it, it was because there's such a connection between Adam and Adama, just like an, a person has to guard their body and their soul, they also have to guard the earth. Is there something intrinsically connected between Adam and Adama, between man and earth? Now, I've seen this myself in print, and since all of you are very, very much into uh, promoting the environment, you might have run into the, an argument that is given that the culprit from a philosophical level of why we are destroying our earth is because it says in the beginning of the Torah that man was told to have dominion over the animals and the, and the fish and the birds and he was to subdue the earth. And I've actually seen it in print where, let's call it the Judeo-Christian ethic, is blamed for the mindset that allows us to destroy our environment. Because they read it just quite literally. It says that man is supposed to uh, uh, dominate the land. And therefore, it means that man thinks he can do anything he wants. So this is very, very similar to what uh, many of, the, of us have probably run into if we're confronted by Christian missionaries. How many of you have actually had an experience where you've been witness to or tried to be convinced? Yeah, so it's, it's, it's a quite... A quite common thing. It's a quite common thing. And what do they do? They take the, the Bible and they quote it in English according to their interpretation. And it, in virtually every single case, has absolutely nothing to do with our interpretation of it. So the same thing here where you read it in English and it says man should dominate the earth. So that we'll just go one step further. That means that, that we are advocating um, trashing the earth. So nothing could be farther from the truth. What it means is that we should have dominion. We have to understand 
However, however we understand how long the earth is in existence or man or the predecessor to what we call man today has been in existence but it's not that long ago that man lived in terror of the animals around him and lived in terror of the elements just in the last two or three years in the in our world which is, is super sophisticated or we think so in relationship to at least our abilities to master the physical powers around us but we saw the tsunami we saw New Orleans and in the last week or two we saw the wildfires in, in California in other words with all of our advances in technology we are still at the mercy in so many cases of the elements around us so when it says in the Torah you should have dominion what it means is that we should take the environment around us and use it to our best advantage not to be at the mercy of all of the elements just 150 years ago how many of you have been to Tzfat? Okay, a good number of you. So if you got any kind of tours or you read up on it, in the last 250 years, Tzfat has been totally destroyed two times by earthquakes. The last one was in 1837, not that long ago. Every single building, except for like a handful of buildings, fell down and, and unfortunately crushed the people inside it. So in other words, it was only 150 years ago that we didn't know how to build buildings that when the earth shook so violently, it wouldn't totally collapse in them and kill everyone inside. It's only 150 years ago. So that's what it means in the Torah. You should have dominion over the wind and fire and rain and floods and animals attacking you. That's what it means. It doesn't mean that we have the right to destroy the earth. So if you're ever confronted with it, you're being trained, and it's, you know, it's such a mitzvah, but you're being trained to be an emissary for our, our mission of living in harmony with the world around us, and especially to know the Torah sources so that other Jews also will begin to understand how important and how much a part of the Torah it is to be in harmony with nature and the environment. Okay, so now I'll bring three different teachings. These are classic midrashim that you should know. So one midrash is that God took Adam on a tour of the Garden of Eden. Remember, every midrash we have to understand in its symbolic metaphorical and allegorical sense. So God takes Adam for a tour, for a tour, and he says, I am giving you this beautiful garden. Take care of it because if you destroy it, there'll be no one after you to fix it up. Now this is an extension of work it and guard it. 
I'm, I'm handing over the Garden of Eden. I'm giving you a utopia. But you have to know that if you blow it, don't expect anyone to, to come and be able to fix it up. Now obviously, we can fix things up. In other words, Baruch Hashem, how many rivers in the last 25 years were taken from total toxic rivers and restored. So we can, but up to a point. Up to a point. Sometimes the damage is so uh, definitive that you have to live with the consequences. And so that's the second one. This leads into perfectly. This is the Torah that I said for Tubishvat is that in the the parsha of Noah, we're told that God told Noah, I'm going to bring a flood on the world, and destroy the world, but I'm going to save you and your family, and you're going to take two of each animal, and through you the earth will be saved. And we're told that it took Noah 120 years to build the ark. And people would come to Noah and say, what are you doing? He said, I'm building an ark because God is going to bring a flood and destroy the world. And everyone laughed at him. So the rabbis point out two things. One is his generation was warned. Because Noah was a very famous person in his generation. But just no one took it seriously. But secondly, is Noah never said more than that. He never said to man, but if you change your ways, maybe God won't destroy the world. He's only going to destroy the world because of how, how crazy it's gotten. Okay, the second thing that God, that Noah didn't do, is he never pleaded with God for his generation. He never once said, God, I'm very glad you're saving me, but isn't there anything I can do to change this? Isn't there anything I could say to the people? Or, God, please don't do this. I'll work really hard. I'll, I'll, I'll make people change. He then he just built the ark. And he was, he was satisfied with being saved. So in one sense, Noah was a big enough sadiq or righteous person that the world deserved to have a remnant come from him. But on the other hand, he, he, he failed in even attempting to save his generation. So I took that idea and I applied it to a current situation, which is global warming. And I said, no one can say anymore, especially in the last year. What's interesting, when I first said this Torah, it was... Uh, in Montreal last year at this time in front of a very uh, important group of people and I went on a limb and I said what I'm about to say and then when I got home I sent it out as an email for, for Tu Bishvat right afterwards the United Nations submitted its support, uh, report that it had been working on I don't know for how many years and they said that they are saying definitively that global warming is a reality. That no one can say anymore, 
maybe it's really not happening, maybe it's just a, a trend in the weather that will pass. The United Nations finally put their stamp the scientists from all over the world saying we cannot ignore this anymore. It is real and it is man-made. So I said no one today can say that they're not being warned. It's like Noah said, I'm building a boat because God has destroyed the world. The, the generation knew it. They were told. And the same thing today. The same thing today. No one can really hide their head unless they don't listen to the radio, TV, or read newspapers, no one can claim that people aren't shouting from the rooftops saying we are, we are heading for calamity. We're heading for disaster. And that the meager attempts to tackle this are, are, are falling far short of what's really needed. And on the other hand, it, it is a Torah imperative to do something about this. In other words, if, if it's a mitzvah not to harm your own body or soul, how much more so if you see a situation that is going to have disastrous impact on the entire planet, how can we not try to do something about it. In other words, we can't be like Noah. We can't just tell people um, we're heading for disaster. We really, really have to do something about it. And actually, because there's still many people saying that it's not, it's not really for real. We don't know for real that it's, it, it's man-made. And we also have an imperative to tell people that, that it is real. There is so much evidence now. So I'll bring one more Midrash, and this will be, will close the introduction. You'll see where I'm going with all of this in relationship to Shabbos. There's one other very beautiful Midrash that it says that after uh, a long time in the ark, that Noah suspected that the waters were subsiding. So he sent out a raven to see if the raven would come back. And as if the raven didn't come back, so he probably found trees and land, and he'd have no reason to come back. He sent him out, and the raven came back. And then it says that he sent a dove, and the dove came back with a little branch of an olive tree. So Noah was very hopeful, like, oh, something's happening here. And then it says after a week he sent out the dove again and the dove did not come back. So Noah knew that the waters were truly subsiding. So the Midrash says that after all this happened the raven came to Noah and said you did a terrible thing here. Noah said, well, what did I do? Because Noah took two of each species but of what would later be called the, the, the clean animals, he took seven. And this is, it says it in the Torah. So he says, when you sent me out, what happens if something would have happened to me? What happens if I would have been exhausted from the flight and I wouldn't have made it back to the ark? Then there would only have been a female left. And that would have been the end of our species. 
So therefore you did a terrible thing by, by sending me and not one of the, the birds that there were seven of. Because if one of them died, there will be others to perpetuate it. So this is a beautiful midrash. We're, I mean, we're talking about a midrash from a few thousand years ago. The, the implication is obvious as to our responsibility to the living creatures around us. It's really only been in the, in the last maybe 50 years where there's been any consciousness whatsoever that we have to protect species. 150 years ago, not that long ago, 150 years ago, there were millions of buffalo and bison in America. Millions, millions. And they were just slaughtered. They were slaughtered. And anyone who reads National Geographic knows about how many animal species that are in great danger. But it wasn't until 50 years ago that, that we actually even thought about, wait a minute, like, maybe there's not enough elephants left. Like, if we keep on killing elephants for their ivory, in 100 years there'll be no elephants left. But here's an ancient midrash from 2,000 years ago that tells us already you can't, you can't purposely destroy a species. And this obviously follows for, for vegetation and our whole ecosystem. Okay, so all of this was an, an introduction. But now the question is, well, what does this have to do with Shabbos? What does it have to do with Shabbos? And here we'll see some beautiful connections. So first of all, we see that God created the world in six days and he rested on the seventh. And this created a cycle that would be perpetuated forever. And in the next segment we're going to try to understand the cycle of seven, how it applies on every single level of time and all around us. But for right now, we see in this simple fact, it, it says six days you shall work and on the seventh you shall rest. So just in the simplest form, what Shabbos introduces is a concept of balance, harmony, and stepping back from trying to control our physical world. And this is understanding Shabbos in just its most simple manifestation. That what is being introduced here is if a person works day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, this is the epitome of imbalance. It's imbalance as far as one's relationship to their family. It's imbalance as far as one's relationship to one's psyche and soul and it's just not a balanced way to live ask anyone or some of you might have experienced this sometime in your life when you're working uh, 24-7 basically and there's no break and so now I just want to tell you and I'm sure you can relate to this the way I first began to be connected to Shabbos was in the following way. In the early 70s, uh, I moved to Oregon 
friends of mine uh, had bought some land in Oregon and they invited me to come live there and I did and we lived in teepees not, not so dissimilar than the, the space that we're in here and I built uh, a house with my own hands and if you know anything about the west coast uh, Oregon, Washington, Northern California when the rains come in November it can rain for weeks on end if anyone's experienced or, or lives there or has visited there it can rain for weeks on end the rains are a serious a serious thing that you have to prepare for and so I moved there in around June and so I had a like a, a time limit to when I, I had to finish my house and so I started working furiously and I'm working and right around then it's a whole longer story I just started to be aware that Judaism might have something in it of interest I read a, a couple of books in English I, I, was, I was turned on a little bit but I didn't know anything about anything and I was still coming out of a very very rebellious stage in life and especially against my Jewish upbringing so I'm building this house and I'm working I'm working literally from the time I get up to the time I go to sleep and after about a month I was I was going bananas physically I was exhausted but my nerves were totally frayed I mean, how long can you work 15 hours a day and this is phys- very physical work and planning and buying and running and what about this and what about that and is this right is that right you have to do this you have to do that after about a month I don't know how it dawned on me but I said to myself you know, I can't keep this up I can't keep this pace up I mean I'll build a house but I'll kill myself in the process and not even for religious purposes I said you know there is this thing called Shabbos and I'm reading in the Bible you're supposed to work six days and rest on the seventh I think that's what I need to do because if I don't take a day off I'm not going to make it so I started when I say keep Shabbos I didn't do anything uh, according to Jewish law I didn't pray I didn't make Kiddush I didn't do anything but I didn't work and it saved me and after doing this for three, four and then the other six days I worked like as hard as I could but that's that taking the seventh day off is exactly what I needed and so after a month of it I started really looking forward to this day off and that's, that's how I really started being connected to Shabbos it was almost like a survival tactic there's a Midrash that Moses he was the Prince of Egypt Steven Spielberg didn't make it up Moses was the Prince of Egypt but he was also aware that he was Jewish he knew he was Jewish and Paro knew he was Jewish and, and the daughter of Paro knew he was Jewish 
nonetheless he was now prince of Egypt and it was just something that this wasn't uh, spoken about but Moshe started to have empathy for the people and so one day he went to uh, Paul and you have to understand that even though Shabbos had not been given in the Torah we have a tradition that Avram Yitzhak Yaakov began to observe Shabbat might be very different than the way we do now but they started observing Shabbat actually the Gemara says it was not that dissimilar and so there was a concept of Shabbos among the Jews already so Moshe went to Paul and said I, I have to tell you bad news is we're, we're, we're overworking our slaves we're killing them we're getting diminishing returns here so Paul said well what do you suggest so he said I suggest we give them a day off and I'm guaranteeing you we'll get more out of them in the six days when they have one day to rest than if, if you work, work them all seven days so Paul said okay it sounds reasonable well, what day you want to give them so he said well how about Saturday <laughs> and so we're told that Moshe introduced the ability for Jews to rest on Shabbos in Egypt but it was, just, it was very similar to the story I just told you that I experienced and this for me this is the best way to learn it when I learn something and it could be about the world in general but let's just say I learned something in Judaism I learned a good Hasidic story and it's a little bit way out and so I say it's not like I don't believe it but did it really happen that way? it kind of like stretches our imagination like it sounds a little bit contrived here could it really have happened that way? and then something happens to in your life that is similar to this story and then you say oh my gosh like this is this is just like this Hasidic story maybe the story is really true maybe it really could have happened that way I don't know about you but this happens to me fairly often that I'll learn something and then something will happen in my life to confirm that it's, it's true it's possible things like this do happen so this Midrash when I first learned this Midrash about Moshe I could really relate to it because that's exactly what happened to me so all of this was just to explain that Shabbos is the epitome of bringing balance and harmony and integration and synergy into our lives because it makes the balance between work and we'll call it work and play work and rest between the mundane and the sacred between secular and holy and it makes that connection now it doesn't mean that the other stuff isn't good as the Torah says six days you shall work meaning it's good to work it's good to work but that work needs the rest of Shabbos to bring out its, its true meaning its true potential so that's a very very beautiful understanding 
of Shabbos and nature and our environment. A second one also is a very obvious thing. For example, the Kyoto uh, Accords, the idea was that by, I don't remember, by 2000 or 2010, we should keep the levels of carbon dioxide to the same levels of 1990. Meaning that we put a cap on it, knowing that populations are growing everywhere, uh, countries are developing everywhere, but if we could at least cap it at 1990, then we could see about lowering it. So uh, there's a good logic to it. There's a good logic to it. There's a a huge question if this is just like a little band-aid on a gaping sore. But nonetheless, it, it, it's, it, it's an attempt. So if you look at Shabbos, Shabbos, if you can imagine everyone keeping Shabbos, it would eliminate approximately 20% of all the emissions in the world that are coming from cars and factories. Why? Because to keep Shabbos, you can't just start one minute before Shabbos. Yeah, I'm sure you know from here, if you've been in Israel, Right, how everything starts shutting down four or five hours before Shabbos. You need to be where you are a couple hours before. And then after Shabbos, it's not so practical to get things going again. You don't really get, get going until Sunday in a lot of cases. So all of a sudden, keeping Shabbos stretches to like a day and a half, sometimes more. So if you can imagine, just theoretically, During the 1973 war, there was an embargo of all oil to Israel. And so people, we had, it was happening here also. There were long lines for the gas gas stations and everything. And in Israel, we were like put into a situation where we had to ration the oil. And the way we did it is every person who owned a car had to select the day of the week that they were going to rest this car and not drive it. And they had a, we had a sticker on the car that indicated which day we were resting, and if we were caught out, we got huge fines. Well, for us, it was natural to just pick Shabbos. It was like, okay, no, no problem with that whatsoever. And what a difference. What a difference. I mean, if, if any of you have ever been to Israel for Yom Kippur, there, it's, there's a silence that you experience it out here in the countryside, but at the whole country is just quiet. It's really remarkable. Just have that one day off. So we can we can see here the the environmental potential of Shabbos. That when we talk about Shabbos being a low tech day and a day where we step back from our our attempts to master the world around us and just go with the energy that that in a, in a sense God is running the world and we can we can step back that's one of the deepest experience about Shabbos is that like I said if you work 24/7 you start to think I'm in total control here. In other words, I'm so used to me manipulating everything around me, you start to think that like the whole world depends on every little move that I make. 
Uh, spiritually, that is a little bit true. But here we're just talking in a, a more <coughs> a general, physical way. So when we step back on Shabbos, we get this balanced understanding that even though God wants us to work six days a week, and it's good to work six days a week, and we should be trying to contribute and fix and heal and master, but there must be that balance where we really understand behind everything, behind everything is God is running the world. God is running the world. So I'm going to bring this segment of learning to a close, and and I'll formulate it in, in the form of a let's call it a visualization uh, that we can in a sense meditate to the music on. So let's just take what we just learned and everyone look deep inside as to what you need to bring balance and harmony to your life. How maybe your experience here is helping you, I'm sure, greatly to find that, that right relationship with the natural world around us. And all of you in your own way in in relationship to what we were learning last night also is how can I use Shabbos to help me be a more balanced person? How can I bring Shabbos into my life that will bring me peace and harmony and a broader consciousness of my and man's relationship to the world around me? That's like the visualization, and I'll just play some nice uh, meditative music to it. This for like five minutes, but it's really very effective when you use the music to promote this visualization, and that way it, it helps greatly to to integrate it totally into our beings.
Now let's look at the cycles of seven. The idea that God created the world in six days, however we understand that, and rested on the seventh, is part of God placing and stamping reality with this cycle of seven. That it wasn't just that God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh, but that this cycle of seven then becomes engraved on every level of reality, and especially of time. The number seven comes up in Judaism over and over and over again. In ritual, in prayer, in holidays, in time, and in the stories of the Torah itself. So, Shemitah, that's actually what we're going to talk about. After the, the sabbatical year, the seventh year in Israel, seven days of creation, the menorah, the candelabra in the temple, seven branches, seven special fruits of Israel, the seven cows and the seven like uh, ears of grain in Paro's dream, the weeks, counting Omer, seven weeks between Pesach and Shavuot, Passover and Shavuot. Would later be called the clean animals, Noah took seven of each species. Seven colors in the rainbow. The seven Canaanite nations in Israel. The four patriarchs and three matriarchs. 
But we're told it's significant there were seven of them altogether. Oh, excuse me, three patriarchs and four matriarchs. Pesach, seven days. Okay, it's true. Outside of Israel, we now added another one, but in its core, it's seven days of Pesach, seven days of Sukkot. The whole story of Hanukkah surrounds the menorah, the, the candelabra of seven branches. That's where the miracle happened. So it's true, Hanukkah is eight days, but the whole miracle is about the seven branches. Menorah. Yeah. I'm not 100% sure, wasn't there enough oil for one day, but the miracle had a duration? Ah, good, very good, yeah, yeah, good, very good. That's a, that's a way you can understand that they had enough oil for one day. So the miracle actually was seven days. Very important. All of the holidays come out in the seventh month. How many times does a bride go around the, the groom under a chuppah? Seven times. And how many days of celebration do we do? Seven. And what do we do at each one of the days? We say seven brachot, seven blessings. So the whole thing of the marriage is super connected to seven. Also when we sit when we mourn for a seven day period and Simchas Torah we do seven circuits I'll just add to it the day before the last day of Sukkot the seventh day of Sukkot has a special name called Hoshana Rabbah it's, it's, it's still part of Sukkot but it's a special day of Sukkot the seventh day of Sukkot and we do seven circuits with our Lulav and Etrog on Hoshana Rabbah and that leads into the seven circuits on Simchas Torah. And who do we invite to our sukkah? Seven guests. Every time we read the Torah on, on Shabbos, we divide it into seven aliyot, or seven sections. Mm-hmm. When we take the ten sefirot, they can be divided in many different ways, but the, the most natural one is three of the intellect and seven of the emotions. And you know what? There's, there's actually even a lot more. There's a lot more. We're told in the Talmud, there's, and there are, there's seven continents. They're what are called the seven seas. They're called the seven oceans or seas, major seas. According to tradition, there's seven heavens. Um, there are seven days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Because Rosh Hashanah is two days and Yom Kippur is one. So there's seven days in between. It's also very significant. What happens when you, in Israel when you keep seven um, Shemitah years, seven sabbatical years? Yoga. The 50th year is the year of freedom, the Jubilee year. And it's seven times seven. After seven times seven, then you have the 50th, which is the exact same model of Shavuos. We count seven times seven weeks, and the 50th day is Shavuos. So there's this idea of seven times seven, and then one even above that, the crown on that. We could go longer. I'm sure if we sat here for another hour, like every minute or so, another one would come out. There are actually more. There are more. But the point is that we see that through our, our uh, tradition and in the physical world itself we see this manifestation of seven um, very, very often.
Now I want to arrange it according to time in, in a way that it, it's a very simple organization, but not everyone thinks about it this way. So very, very quickly, in days, we have the concept of seven, because Shabbos is the seventh day. Weeks, we have a concept between Pesach and Shavuos, seven times seven weeks. In months, we have this concept. We didn't say it directly, but we alluded to it here. All three pilgrimage holidays happen in the first seven months of the year. Pesach, Shavuos, and Sukkot all happen within seven months. And we know that the month of Tishrei, which is the seventh month, is just full of holidays. Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, and Shemini Yetzirah. Okay, and then we have in years, every seventh year, there's a Shemitah year. And our next segment, that's what we're moving towards. We want to explain especially Shemitah, especially to this group that is working so close with the, the land to understand Shemitah. But then, as we said, seven times seven sabbatical years is also a cycle. Now there's even a greater cycle. We're told that this cycle of history, as we know it, will last for 6,000 years, and the seventh millennium will be what? What will happen in the seventh millennium, according to Jewish thought? the era of Mashiach. And it's called the Great Shabbos. So here we see the significance when God created the world in six days and rest in the seventh, that it wasn't just that that was being affected. That the cycle of seven becomes the overriding cycle on every level of time. From day to week to month to years to millennium. And there's even a further one in Kabbalah it's talked about all of uh, existence as being a series of Shemitahs but in the idea of millennium. So this period of history will last for 7,000 years, 6,000. The seventh will be Mashiach. According to Kabbalah, so when we finish that, then there is a new cycle. And this could be elaborated much deeper, but what this does is it expands our concept of, of time greatly. And it fits in very, very beautifully with uh, some of the scientific ideas of how old the universe is. So in other words, there are even uh, sabbatical cycles of seven times seven in, in millennium. And there's even another one that we're told that in the world to come there will be almost an infinite amount of Shemitahs, but in the bigger cycle, indicating the, the eternal aspect of, of life or consciousness. So here we see an amazing thing. 
It's an amazing thing. So, usually we're only aware of the days. But if someone is super sensitive, they realize that not only are we in a cycle of seven as far as days, but in months also. And this idea of the three pilgrimage holidays happening in the seven months, there is an awareness of a consciousness of this. And then the one that we're moving towards now to discuss is Shemitah. Because in the Torah it's called a Shabbat Vashem, a Sabbath for God. And, it's, and we, we understand that just like a human being needs to rest and renew, one, a, a person needs to renew themselves and receive new energy and inspiration. So the Torah says the land also needs to rest. And the concept that has spread throughout the world of leaving fields fallow really comes from the biblical injunction of the sabbatical year. It's just that a, someone not connected to it from, let's say, a religious point of view, well, maybe every fifth year will let a field lay fallow, or every sixth year, or every ten, or every four. But the concept comes from, from the sabbatical year, that the land needs to rest. Ask any farmer that if you continually work the land and, and don't give it a break, and they found this especially when, when using non-organic fertilizers, when they pump up the earth and it, 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 it gives tremendous yields, but, but they notice that they don't up <laughs> like the drug every year, the land becomes totally depleted. And so farmers around the world understand the simple truth of leaving on a rotational basis. If you have 100 acres, so you, this year you leave 20 fallow, the next year you leave another 20 fallow and another 20. And this is done all over the world. Because there's just a simple realization that the land needs its rest. So I'll just give you my own personal uh, experience with Shemitah. Is, uh, we have uh, around our house a, a, a very, very large area. And over 30 years that we've lived there, so we have uh, planted lots of fruit trees, shade trees, you have three different lawns, you have lots of flowers and bushes. For many, many, many years, we grew a lot of our own vegetables. For a, a lot of those 30 years, we grew a lot of our vegetables. And my great love, I wouldn't call it a hobby, it's much more than a hobby, is I'm out working in the yard almost every day. I mean, I can't resist, you know, clip, you know, something there, take off some dead leaves there, put a little uh, fertilizer, uh, dig around. I'm just always doing I work at home, and I love working at home. And so I work for a few hours, and you need a break. I don't drink coffee. So I go outside, and I do something in the yard. 
but it, it, it keeps me connected to Eretz Yisrael keeps me connected to the land I know every bush and flower and we have, we have scores and scores and scores of potted plants all over the place and it takes a lot, it takes a lot of work to take care of them so when Shemitah comes for me I really really am aware of it I really feel the difference and the whole sixth year especially those last four or five months it's like Friday afternoon because we're thinking in the cycle of seven but it's just much bigger but if you're really connected to Shemitah already in the fifth year you're thinking about which trees you want to plant so you get them in before Shemitah and which projects you want to do and the last four months before Shemitah is like those last few hours before Shabbos where you know, you're finishing everything up it's really hectic <laughs> you're getting everything ready and then when Shemitah comes it's just like Shabbos like you step back and it's like okay it's time for the land to rest we don't do any plowing which means you don't even take a hoe and dig around the trees you don't certainly you don't prepare any gardens or dig holes for trees no pruning you don't prune anything no fertilizing and of course no planting of anything so there's only four things but that's like 90% of our agricultural uh, work and I really feel it when we left it was only six weeks into Shemitah but already it was just I was just looking at my yard completely differently because now I, I, I can't do anything with it so I just have to kind of sit back and enjoy it's getting its rest and just enjoy its beauty I'm not going to get into all the laws of Shemitah but there are certain things you can do you're allowed to water you're not supposed to let everything die that's not the point of Shemitah so you're allowed to water if a tree becomes diseased for example and you see that one of the branches is diseased and that if you don't prune it it will spread to the rest of the tree you're allowed to prune it if uh, you, if you can oh if, if you make bowls around your trees to hold the water and the, the, the rains in the winter have broken down the bowls and if you don't make the bowls again the, it won't hold the water and then the tree will suffer you're allowed to do that these are just examples in other words we're allowed to do certain things to maintain the health of everything in the yard it's kind of like the same philosophy behind we obviously can put out a fire if a life is in danger on Shabbat even though we're not allowed to put out fires just to, to save wood for instance right, so that, that's a good uh, example, a good connection but the land is distressed so let's let's take this idea of seven on every level of time and we can in a sense ask ourselves are we in this rhythm 
are we aware of these rhythms of time? Are we aware that we're in the year 5768, which means that we're coming to the end of the sixth millennium? Like, are, are we in tune with that? Are we in tune as we come towards the year 6000, which we're told is the climax of this cycle of history? It seems that all of humanity has kind of gotten to the Friday afternoon of, of, hum, of the human cycle because we're moving at such tremendous speeds. And when you have to prepare Shabbat before the sun goes down, you've got to really move around and get things going and speed it up a bit. It seems like we're entering that Friday afternoon phase. And we're told specifically that the technology of the last 250 years, which by the day is getting more uh, complex and advanced, just every day they're coming out with new discoveries and new inventions that are making the world almost at our fingertips. And we're told that that's specifically because history is coming towards a certain completion now. And the other thing that we're told that is connected to this cycle is the fact that we're back in Israel. That we were in exile for 2,000 years and all of a sudden, all of a sudden, against all historic precedent, a people have returned to their homeland and, and made a country again and revived the language it's like unprecedented and why is it happening now same thing so here this is a very, these are good examples that there really is a cycle of, of 6,000 years and the 7,000 that is coming the question are we in tune with it are we in tune with the cycle of Shabbos are we in tune with the pilgrimage holidays the Pesach, Shulis and Sukkot and we see that there's a flow there there's a rhythm there and are we in our own life connected to cycles of, of seven years? Like, look where you were seven years ago. Where do you want to be in another seven years? And you'll see how dramatically our life changes from where we were seven years ago to where we will be in seven years. And we need to be connected to that kind of psychological maturing. Psychological. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so let's take these ideas and meditate to the music.
last idea about Shemitah. Very, very beautiful understanding of what is the purpose of Shemitah. As with all Jewish law, there are reasons behind everything. What we'll call maybe a philosophical understanding, mystical understanding. And so, what is on one level, on many different levels, at, at the sabbatical year will, will affect and has a purpose from just simply the land resting and a giving man a chance to rest for a year also. goes without saying that the concept in academia of taking a sabbatical comes from the source. That's where it, and it's almost too obvious to say, but this is where it comes from. <clears throat> that one teaches for six years, and then the seventh is really supposed to be for research. Sabbatical year is for research and you person writes their books and uh, dissertations and experiences certain things so that they'll have renewed inspiration. So in the Torah when it says that the Shemitah is a Shabbat Lashem, a Sabbath for God. So Rashi says something that it seems like he's not saying so much. But I want to explore it for just a few minutes. Rashi says, what does it mean a Shabbat for God? So Rashi says, like the Shabbos of Bereshit. Like the Shabbos of creation. The question is, what, what is he trying to tell us? Like you say, that, like the Shabbos of creation. What, what does that mean? So there's one way to look at it. As always, there's many different perspectives. And we could have 20 different explanations of this Rashi. But one way to look at it is the following. As we said before, man was placed in the Garden of Eden. And what was the situation there? It's what we call a utopian situation. That's the idea. An ideal situation where man was placed in this uh, these circumstances where he just had to work it and guard it and he would have a uh, as it were a perfect life an utopian life and everything in the garden was, was the Hebrew word is hefker meaning ownerless everything was ownerless and one of the laws of Shemitah an amazing law from, let's say, a Western point of view, is that during Shemitah, everyone's fields become ownerless. In other words, if you have a hundred acres of apple trees, during the, during the sabbatical year, anyone can go and eat from your trees. It's as if you don't own it anymore. You, you're not a person is not allowed to go in and, and do any kind of destructive act to someone else's orchard but all of the produce in the land of Israel this is how it was meant to be would become ownerless everyone could share equally also you couldn't take in our day a truck in and just 
harvest someone else's hundred acres and walk away with it. You were only allowed to take enough for a, a few meals for you and your family. But still, the idea that we work for six years and then God says, you did great. Wonderful job. But I'm just letting you know it's not yours. It's not yours in the Western concept of ownership. And this is an amazing thing. This is truly an amazing thing. Everything becomes ownerless because the Torah says the land belongs to me. There's a story in the Gomorrah that two men were arguing over ownership over a piece of land. And they came to the rabbi and said, please help us solve it. I say, this land is mine. He says, it's his. What do we do? So the rabbi says, wait one second. I'll ask the earth. And the Gemara says, he got down on the ground and he put his ear to the land. <laughs> and after a few minutes, he stood up and he said, the gentleman, the earth says, you belong to me. I don't belong to you. This is a story in the Gomorrah. But in the Torah itself, it says explicitly, God says, the land is mine. You are sojourners with me. So let's look at this Rashi again. What does it mean, like the Shabbos of Bereshit? We're told that Adam and Eve ate of the tree right before Shabbos. And the decree came down that they had to leave the Garden of Eden. But God allowed them to stay for one Shabbos, the Shabbos of Bereshit, so that it would be implanted forever in human consciousness, the experience of Shabbos in the Garden of Eden. And in fact, we're told further, we're told that had they waited so Shabbos, they could have eaten not only from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they could have eaten from the tree of life. That's how, how strong the energy of Shabbos would have affected them. So we look at the Shemitah from the most ideal sense. And I'll tell you another law of Shemitah, that loans are canceled on Shemitah, at the end of Shemitah that if someone owes someone else, it's not like he shouldn't pay them back, or this is a loophole, but we're told that if there are any outstanding debts that have not been accounted for or worked out, and especially if the person is in a situation that they simply can't pay it, the debts are canceled. So if you put that together, debts are canceled, the land becomes ownership, ownerless. And then, one thing I didn't emphasize is <coughs> another purpose of Shemitah is most people in ancient Israel, including the sages and the rabbis, were farmers. The vast majority of people lived on the land and, and depended on agriculture. Everyone worked for six years. So just like we work for six days and then we have Shabbos, 
And Shabbos is meant to be a spiritual day where we can take our time in, in praying. We can take our time and have time to learn. The Shemitah year was meant for people to have the ability to learn Torah without the, the feeling that, that there should be in the fields. And how can I take time to learn Torah? So when we put all of this together, we see that the Shemitah was meant for people for a whole year to have a sabbatical. The entire nation was to have a sabbatical in order to take time and find that balance between six years of working and a seventh year we, we balance it out. What is life really about? Is it just about my career? Is it just about my profession? Or maybe there are other things in life that need to be balanced, just like we do on Shabbos. All the produce became owners, ownerless. Debts were canceled. And so therefore, Shemitah is a mini attempt to recreate a Garden of Eden experience. Just like every Shabbos is, by the way. Every Shabbos, we, we, we spoke last night about the bliss of Shabbos, the peace of Shabbos. Well, that is what the Garden of Eden represents for us. But here is in a bigger way. One day is like not so hard to handle, but a whole year? So along with its difficulties to leave everything and have this incredible faith that God would only be telling us to keep this commandment if, because it was good for us. But just think of the spiritual benefits of having a whole year to refocus and to, and to learn and to experience the land without having to control it. Like I said, it was, an, it was like the Shabbos of Bereshit. That's what Rashi means. It was like the Garden of Eden.